Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. Today I'm joined as always by Greg. Hello. And we will be reviewing Viceroy. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Right. Uh, I unfortunately have not had a lot of opportunities to play a variety of games, but I know you have. You've been getting to the table pretty often. Yeah, I have. Uh, I actually got to play a game the other day that I've been meaning to play. It's, it's been a game that's been on my mind a bit recently. It's called the Paris Connection. It is one of my many train games. You said Paris Connection, and I was like, this is going to be a jewel heist. It's going to be something Thomas Crown Affair. No, it's trains. Of course it's, it's trains. It's trains. It's trains. Uh, but it's a bit of a different type of train game, and... Everyone that I played it with has really enjoyed it so far. So the point of the game is you have six railway companies which start in Paris. And now they each have one little train out there, which is the track to start out with. And the goal is for them to go and become more valuable by connecting different cities, things like that. Now the interesting part is each player does not have their own kind of train company so everyone is building every train company interesting yeah so that being said the way that it usually works is that uh, the train tokens also are the same as what you use for tracks so and also are used for stock so okay talk about multi-use exactly so you start by putting them all in one bag you take out however many as uh, based on the number of players that you have. It's between three and six people. And you put those behind your little uh, shield. And uh, so those are whatever colors you have that you have that many pieces of stock in each of these different train companies. The rest of these go onto the actual company boards. So there are boards that have, I believe, up to 36 different trains on there and you place them per color so you know all the blacks on one all the reds on one all the yellows on one so on and so forth and then on your turn you can do one of two actions you can either take a train from any of those train boards and place it on the map adjacent to one of the other trains okay or you can trade your stock either one for two or one for one for a different color so you can take one of your stock from behind your your thing put it back, and then take either one or two of any other color. Okay. So that's the only thing you can do. So now this is where it gets interesting. Because let's say blue starts getting a lot more valuable because they connect different cities. Once you connect a city, depending on the color of the city, you get the stock value goes up. So it can go up by one, two, three, or four. So now blue is getting to be very valuable. What's everyone doing? Getting stock of blue. Right. Which means that blue now no longer has many more pieces of track to lay to become more valuable. Huh. And then later on, let's say yellow eclipses blue. Now people are going to give back some blue stock to take some yellow stock. And now the blue has, again, more rails that they can put on the board to become more powerful. Interesting. So it's less of a, you know, ticket to ride route building game and more of a investment market cornering type of game yes everyone who played this so far has said that this is almost like capitalism the board game i yeah very much so 
Especially I, early capitalism. Exactly. It's early capitalism. You just like, you know, you're buying into the stocks that are getting more and more powerful, but then you have to know when to switch to the different stock, or maybe you want to take a risk on this lower end stock that you're going to try to develop, but then other people are going to try to screw you from it and that kind of stuff. Hmm. So it really does work as almost like a kind of a simplified model of like capitalism. And the people that I played it with really enjoyed it. So it's a, it's also a really quick game. It plays in 30 minutes. Okay. Which is not something that you normally hear about train games that have stock. Like, <laughs> it's most of the times you're looking at those like 18xx trains like where it's you're building something for like three hours of like this route across the states or something like sure. that. Which, I mean, I love. But this is one that I can actually get other people to play. <laughs> well, that's always good. Um, yeah, no, it actually sounds quite interesting, and I, I retract my initial disgust at hearing that it was yet another train game, so I might have to play that with you sometime. I, I think that you'll like it. Yeah, for sure. So the one game that I actually have had an opportunity to play, I've played a lot, it's called A Quiet Year, and people who listen to the podcast will know what A Quiet Year is because I've literally talked about it for now three weeks in a row. I'm just really, really hype about this game, and Jacob now knows why, because he joined myself and our friend William for a game, and it is just so much fun. Now that I've had an opportunity to get it to table four different times, I've played both the regular variant and the fleeting year shorter variant. I've played with a bunch of different types of people. I recognize how much fun it is and how different it can be from game to game. Just the fact that you have you know, between two and four wildly different personalities exploring a narrative together leads to a whole bunch of, of interesting scenarios. And that game that we played together, we actually were recording some video. I know we're hoping to get that out at some point, so I don't want to spoil what happens in the plot, but just the fact that we were able to take, you know, these disparate elements, because it's always when you introduce a new situation, whether it's by discovering something new with an action or whether it's by being prompted to by the cards it's always a single situation you know it occurs informed by all these other things but it doesn't necessarily have to be integral to those so taking all of these independent isolated situations and weaving them together in ways that make sense and are compelling is really a lot of fun yeah i remember you were saying this one was one of the more narrative narratively driven of your games and I mean, I, I would say that I'm personally at least partially to blame because... Very much so, yes. <laughs> I'm a narratively driven person yeah, in it's, general. It's actually interesting. I was having some conversations with people. According to the rules, rules as written, you're actually supposed to only talk for like 30 seconds at a time when you introduce a new thing. But neither of us wanted to tell you that because it actually worked. It worked really well that you had these more elaborate narratives each time you introduce something, because then that gave you more to build off of. You know, it felt more integrated into the scenario, and it felt more real, I suppose, just because you had a bigger opportunity to describe it. So, you know, and maybe also, uh, some reevaluation there next time we play the game. But it was definitely interesting. And it also let us actually connect some things which were not yet connected. So, this is true. Like the little details, they always matter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but so... I'm still super hype about that. I'm just as hype as I was before I actually had a chance to play it. Highly recommend it to anyone out there listening. A Quiet Year, Buried Without Ceremony Games. Check it out. There we go. I also got to play another two games. 
and one of them being Carcassonne, something that I've gotten to table actually pretty often recently. I mean, it's a game that I've talked about many times because my roommate and I play it every once in a while. We haven't played it in a while, but it's the kind of thing where he's beating me 25 games to 18. So, right. And the fact that you know exactly how many games he's beating you by just really shows how you treat this game and how you think Yeah, it. exactly. So needless to say, I creamed some people at Gamers that <laughs> Carcassonne. So, but it's a very different game between two players and five players, which is really interesting. Two players, if you are ever sharing any uh, plot of anything, it pretty much means that it's moot. So either one person controls it, the other person controls it, or it's tied and it just evens out because you get the same number of points. Versus anything above that, so three, four, five player, you share the points. So now being in a city with someone else doesn't necessitate you trying to take over that city and get the points for yourself. It just means, oh, both of us get the points now. If I'm ahead of him already, that's fine with me. I don't care if he takes the points as well. Or if I'm behind, now I really want to work on getting uh, getting this city by myself. So it's a very different kind of feel to it. Yeah, I can imagine. But still a lot of fun. I always enjoy bringing Carcassonne to table. The other game... Codenames Deep Undercover. Always fun. Always fun. We were getting into some very rowdy, interesting games by the end of the night, and it can be hilarious with all the different words that come out there and trying to connect them all and having some people be inept at uh, giving the different hints and other people being really good at it. So I'm having a thought now because I know we've played Deep Undercover, we've played Pictures, we've played Regular, we've played a couple games of pictures plus regular i really wonder what it would be like to play deep undercover plus pictures because the combination of hilariously vulgar and extremely surreal seems like it would just be fantastic you know we have to try that and we will report back oh absolutely (laughs) wait with bated breath to hear the results of that awesome all right so there you have it that's what we've been playing And now, let's build a pyramid of power with our review of Viceroy. Yeah, let's. So Viceroy is a fantastic game that plays two to four players. And in it, each player takes the role, I suppose, of a Viceroy that's building up their pyramid of power appropriately by recruiting different people, sort of attaches. Each card that you can take represents a single person, and each of those people does a certain thing for you depending on what tier of your pyramid that it's placed in. So there's obviously a lot that goes into this. You've got the cost, you've got the different effects. So let's run through some of the mechanics. So the main mechanic of this is the actual pyramid. So in this game, you are building on top of, or technically in a 2D space, you are building up towards the center of the table from a bottom row, which is like the base of your power, and you're building up towards the most powerful like effects kind of thing. The way that you get the cards is through auctioning at the very beginning. Now, the auctioning in this game is a bit different than in many other games where it's all bidding however many coins you want or anything like that. Instead, you take the cards and uh, you place them in front of these gemstones, and they're the same ones that are used for building uh, the actual pyramid, as we'll get into later. And you have a red, yellow, green, and blue gemstone. Whichever one uh, the card is next to is what you have to bid in order to get that card. 
you may only bid one gemstone per round or per bidding round. So everyone goes, has it in their closed hands, reveals it at the same time. If you are the only one to bid for that card, great, it's yours. You take it into your hand, you discard that gemstone. Everyone else who bid, if they had the same color gem as someone else, they discard those gems and go into the second round of bidding, where the same thing happens. No new card is put out, so it's only those three cards that are left, or however many are left, and everyone bids again. If there's a tie one more time, it goes to the third and final round of bidding. And if they tie one more time, nobody gets a card. Right. So it's pretty dire circumstances if you decide that, you know, you want this to be the hill that you die on. Like, neither of you will get a card, and it can be really devastating later on because so much of this game is about setting up the first tier of cards so that you can then springboard into the higher tiers. Mm -hmm. So the way that you do that is actually in the second phase. So the second phase is your development phase kind of thing. And what you do there is you take cards that are in your hand and you place them on the table. They have to be adjacent to at least one other card or on top of another card, meaning they're adjacent towards the middle of the table. It's a little bit hard to explain. It's very visual. It's like if you're looking at the bottom in as like next to the table and then it goes towards the center of the table. So you have to place the cards next to each other and they have in their corners gems. And also at one point in the bottom, they have a gem. So on the corners, they have one quarter of a gem and then on the bottom, they have half a gem. So when you place them, the colors of the gems, you don't have to match, but it's nice if you do. You can build up up to five different levels of your pyramid, depending on how many cards and which way you want to expand. I've seen people expand very much sideways and not really go any the higher levels, or people who just try to like get as many of the high-level cards as possible. Now, any card can be played in any of the levels of the pyramid, which is a cool part. It just changes the cost of the card and the effect of the card. So the card on itself has four different rows that show the different effects on each row. And the cost for all those is cumulative in gems. So if you have a card that on the side has on the bottom, uh, from bottom to top going green, red, red, blue. So for the first level, you only pay a green, you get to place that on the first level and that's it. All it needs to be is adjacent to one of the other cards and that's all. Now, if you go to the second level, it'll be red uh, and green, and you pay those two, and now this card has to be on top of two other cards in order to place it in the second level. It does not have to complete the gem of the right color, but it just has to be placed there. Right. So you've got this sort of scaling cost mechanic, but one of the things that's really interesting about this game is that with the four different colors of gems... It's not strictly more money that you're spending, which can mean that diversifying the types of money that you have allows a single coin or two coins to do the work of four or five coins of a single color. So that keeps it very intriguing. And also, the benefits that you have are not cumulative, unlike the costs. So if you were to play something at first level, then you would get whatever the first level effect is. If you were to play something at the second level, you would get the second level effect, not the first level effect. So even though you're having to pay an increased cost, you're not getting multiplicative benefits, which means you have to prioritize, okay, these are the benefits that I want to make sure that I get at this tier, 
these are the benefits that I want to make sure that I get at this other tier. And it's very much a strategic element because it can cause one card to have four very, very different strategies to how you want to play it. Yeah, they can be used for many different strategies each. And though the higher cost ones are mostly objectively better, sometimes you're taking a card for the bottom ability or the second ability. It's not like you only want to use those top abilities because for your strategy, you might want just the thing that's in the second tier or in the first tier, uh, whereas you're bidding against someone who wants it in their top tier. So it also has that cool aspect of, you know, I want this card and I'm going to take this card before someone else does uh, because I can see this being used, but also I can use it myself too. So that's also a pretty cool aspect. The game itself uh, is pretty much just done in those rounds. You, you get three, you only get one card per bidding phase, and then you may place up to three cards per development phase, and then you go right back up to bidding phase. One of the things that you have to keep in mind is that after the bidding phase, uh, the cards actually go from one side of the gems to the other, and any cards that you missed last round, you have one more chance to get them. After that, they're discarded. This also happens before the development phase, so you can actually target your development to getting what you need or putting something in place in order to get or use a certain card that you see that is currently going to be up for bidding in the next round. Right, and that forecasting is very important because in addition to playing cards for their listed value, you can actually discard cards from your hand in order to gain gems. There are some cards that, when played at certain tiers, will give you gems, but if you don't have any of those in hand and you see a card that's coming up next turn that you really desperately want to get because it enables your strategy, it gives you an opportunity to do that and not be going completely blind into the next round. So that's really important. And there's also, if you don't have any card that you're really particularly looking at in, in that round of bidding, you can always bid nothing and then get actual gems for that as well. So that's a different way of getting the gems that you need to fuel your your whole rise in your in your pyramid. Now the cards themselves have a lot of different kinds of effects that will affect the game in different ways. Most of them have effects that will be useful for end game scoring. So other than pretty much the uh, gaining gems and possibly attack tokens, most of the effects are late game or end game. Right. So almost everything that you're going to gain by playing cards that isn't a gem is going to be a token. And 80% of those tokens only come into play during final scoring. So these are things like magical scrolls, science represented by a gear, and shields. Each of those comprises a set. If you have one of each, that gets you points at the end of the game. Magical scrolls get you points at the end of the game based on other enabler tokens that increase their value. And science tokens function as part of the set and also do have a minor in-game effect where they allow you to draw extra gems each time you pass. But then there are a handful of things that do take effect during the game. One of those, as you mentioned, is attack tokens. So attack tokens have two uses. You can acquire them by playing cards. And then during the bidding phase, if you don't want or can't bid a gem, you can bid an attack token instead, which allows you to choose first before anyone else even if you choose something that matches a color that someone else bid. So it's a very tactical sort of thing. You can guarantee yourself access to a high priority card or get access to cards that don't match the colors of tokens that you have currently in your supply. It makes them very useful. Now, on the other hand, if you choose not to spend them until the end of the game, then they become 
attacks appropriately, and they take four points away from your opponent for each attack that you have that exceeds their shields. So it's a sort of way for you to go on the offensive, mitigate some of your opponent's strategy if you see that they're doing really well. The other thing that actually has an effect during the game is something that we haven't talked about yet that's called law cards. So all of the cards that you can acquire through the auction are called character cards, and they have the effects that we've described. They have a cost, they have gems at the top and bottom, they have various things that they do when they hit the field. Law cards are slightly different. They do still have the gems at the top and the bottom, but they don't have a cost, and rather than having one of four possible effects based on their tier, they have a single effect that's written out, and it will prompt you to do certain things. These can vary wildly, including replacing certain cards, moving them to other parts of your pyramid, putting tokens into play that you wouldn't otherwise have immediate access to, and all sorts of sort of game-changing things like that. Law cards are very hard to get. You can really only get them through character cards that allow you to draw cards off the law deck. So it's something that you have to play into a lot in terms of the strategy. Yeah, exactly. And this brings us to just one of the things that we like about the game, which is that there are multiple strategies. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of different ways to win this game and just how to play it. In the last game that we played, we had one of the other players. He went full on into the law cards and got a lot of points from that. Whereas I came in second place by pretty tight margin. I played like only the beginning law cards that I had, but nothing else. Mm -hmm. I didn't ever draw another one or anything like that. So you can have a lot of different focuses, some on like getting more cards and just putting them into your pyramid, some on getting the different sets. So, you know, if you want to focus on getting the set of science, defense, and magic, you can also go for the uh, gem strategy. So if you're going for actually getting points through gems and, and all the infinity gems, which you can use once per round every round without like having to worry about. And they also give you points at the end of the game. So you have a lot of different ways that you can actually get the points once this game scoring comes out. Each of them is viable. I've seen people win in all the different kinds of ways. Yeah, absolutely. The, the sheer variety of strategies is absolutely one of the game's strengths. You know, there's no strategy that seems inherently more powerful than the other and because of the four different effects on each card you can't even really say that oh you know this particular spread of cards that we turned up in the first couple rounds of the game mandates that we use a certain strategy because everything is so different you know if you want to build a magic strategy you can do that using almost any set of cards in the game provided you can get them to the right tier if you want to build a science strategy same sort of thing just converse so that's something that's, that's really great about the game. One of the other things that I really personally appreciate about the game is the fact that the characters themselves don't have any repetition. There are 64 character cards in the game, and there are no duplicates. That means that you have infinite permutations on top of your already heightened variability due to the different things that you can select. There's no real way for you to try to metagame and say, okay, these are how many you know soldiers are on the field. These are how many must be left in the deck. What can I plan for? Because unless you've memorized 64 different cards, you're just going to have to play what comes up and play to whatever strategy you've decided to go with. Yeah, exactly. 64 different cards with four effects on each card. Right. So that's a lot to memorize. And also then the gem colors in the top right, top left, and bottom. And so it's just about impossible to do that. And I really like that about the game. It means that... 
also you don't need like an early game deck or a late game deck or an early game tier, a late game tier. No, just shuffle them all together. You have one deck that you just go from because the cards have such a different usability based on which tier you're putting them in. And therefore every single card is relevant at any part of the game. So a card has one, one type of use at the beginning, a different type of use in the middle, and then like completely different one at the end, depending on how you play the game. So I think the game does a really great job in keeping it variable and balancing out the different strategies. Absolutely. All that said, though, no game is perfect, as we're fond of saying. And I know we, we've encountered a few gripes about the game. First and foremost, there are more than a few circumstances, what you might call corner cases, where something is just not clear based on the rules. The interaction of the tokens with the cards, and a lot of this comes from the law cards, because the law cards have you do very highly specific things that sometimes conflict with what you might into it or what the other rules say so there's no guidance in the rule book about you know golden rule of if a card said something do it this way which just leads to a lot of confusion in a few circumstances and we actually have spent probably 15 to 20 minutes in a single game just trying to parse out okay what is this exactly telling us to do and can that actually happen yeah exactly just a few definitions that are missing or assumed even though that not everyone would agree that they were assumed in the right way and in general the rules can also be a little bit hard to get through at the first playthrough i know that when we first tried playing it it took us a while to actually read through the rules and figure out how the game is played not necessarily that they're badly written it's just that it's a bit of a dense kind of like he rule heavy game kind right. of thing. And a big part of that comes from the design and you know the fact that one of its strengths is the variability and that every card can be played at first through fifth tier also means that every card you're drawing at the beginning of the game and trying to use to learn how the game works has you know four other things on it that you won't be utilizing. So there's just a little overload right when you pull it out of the box and it can be a little bit hard to, to grasp and also to teach. Mm -hmm. Another thing that um, is something that I noticed last time I played is the issue with colorblindness. Yep. So this is another one of those games where color is literally integral to the game. If you can't tell the colors apart from each other, you cannot play this game. Right. And the gems themselves, they make it even harder. So along the edges of the gems, for the bigger ones that are on the cards, in terms of the corners and the bottom and of the actual cardboard tokens, there are little hatch marks which show which gem is which. But when that is minimized to the really tiny just dot of color that shows what you have to pay for each level, when I played last, it became a real problem where someone had to actually like be actively asking us like, oh, what is this, uh, this like card gonna cost me or anything like that? Which is a problem with the game because you don't want to be forecasting what you're looking at in the auction phase or what you want to go for. So that is a bit of an issue depending on who you're playing with. Right. And the most disappointing thing about this, I think, is that the game designers clearly acknowledged that this might be a possibility and took the step of including the hatch marks around the rings, mm -hmm. in the rings around the gems for the larger iterations, but then the smaller ones 
it's simply not visible. Yeah. Not only that, but also the shading within the gems actually makes it even harder for the people to actually tell them apart. Even if they can partially see the colors, those make it all muddled where certain ones can look like others. Right. But all that said, it's still an excellent game. Final score, I'm going to give it a buy it. I think the, the combination of high replayability plus, you know, highly variable but equally viable strategies for victory make it a very compelling game and make it something that a lot of people would have fun with because they don't feel forced out of their favorite strategy. They just have to pull it off. I agree. I'm also going to give it a buy it. I really enjoyed it. It's a very unique game. The whole spatial aspect of building the pyramid on top of each other is a lot of fun. Another thing that we didn't mention, but during the auction phase, you're allowed to talk to other people about what you want to bid. And it can actually be very friendly where when we played at one point, we were just saying like, I'm going for this one. So, you know, don't waste your coin if you're going for that one. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, I'm going for this one. Oh, you're going for that one too? All right, let's see who's got, who's got more. <laughs> so... Uh, there is that aspect of it that you can actually communicate and you know not waste your own resources or if you want to you can waste other people's resources it's a lot of fun after you get through like you know some of the rule sets and all that and once you've played it a few times i know that even when i got back to it and had to replay re-read the rules and all that it took me a little bit but once i got past that it is not that difficult if someone is teaching it to you so if one person knows it, it's pretty easy to get other people to understand how it's played. Right. So yeah, definitely buy it in my book. Agreed. So now let's compare it to a few other games. Right. First thing, I think that there's a lot of similarity between this and between Seven Wonders. They have a lot of the same sort of, not engine building exactly, but strategic focus that benefits from synergizing your buildings correctly. You know, in the case of Seven Wonders, it's buildings. In the case of this, it's characters. But each time, it behooves you to pick a strategy and stick with it, whether that's science, whether that's, you know, magic in the case of this, economics, those sorts of things. They have buildings that build upon one another in order to enable late-game, high-level strategies. Lots of overlap there. Definitely. Another one, which is a little bit of a stretch, but if you're looking at something that's even a bit more complex or at a slightly different level than Viceroy. Race for the Galaxy is one that I would recommend because it also has that kind of building that the iterative process of you know getting your different planets and then seeing what synergizes with them what cards are good with them whether you're going for a military strategy a you know mining strategy or, or whatever it is you have these different strategies that you can use which are all equally powerful and just different. And you build them in a similar way. You still have to make those same kinds of decisions about getting the different cards and all that. Right. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, much more simple than Viceroy, is Splendor. Obviously, you have the the sort of thematic similarities between the gems, but also it does have a lot of similarities mechanically, where you have this sort of building progressive series of buildings in order to get access to the more expensive the better things in order to enable your victory. So if you like that sort of, you know, progressive mechanic, but don't want something as heavy as Viceroy or as Race for the Galaxy, Splendor is obviously a good choice. Well, there you have it. Our review of Viceroy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope you enjoyed our review of Viceroy.
WashingCon tickets are on sale, so head over to WashingCon.com to check those out. They've got lots of great options, including Sunday-only tickets and reduced price for kids. They've announced lots of great VIPs, so you definitely want to get in on that early. Finally, be sure to tune in next week when we'll be having a social deduction special and comparing two of the more popular social deduction games, The Resistance and Secret Hitler.